and welcome to this special edition of Salt and Light Radio. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann. The book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 2, says, The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Do you ever wonder what would happen if a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Catholic priest would get together to talk about that one verse, about the God that each of them praises? Who is this God of the Jews, of the Muslims, and of the Christians? After all, we do say that we believe in the same God. Today on Salt and Light Radio, we join Rabbi Aaron Flansreich of the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto, Imam Hamid Slimi, Chair of the Canadian Council of Imams, and Salt and Light's Father Thomas Rosica for a special panel discussion. This is part one of the panel that was hosted in February 2011 at the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto. Tonight we're here at Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto for This Is My God, a discussion panel between Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Father Thomas Rosica, and Imam Hamid Slimi. Um, one of the highlights of this event, of course, because it's a panel discussion, is that people can submit their questions. A special thank you to all of you who've already sent questions through our website, through Facebook, um, and uh, through Twitter. Um, people here that are at the event live will be able to write their questions down. We're going to try to get as many questions in. Now, there's a lot of people just coming in. The event is going to begin momentarily. Um, there's a few people that are here. Uh, Kenny is here with me. Kenny is a member of the synagogue here? Yeah, I'm also co-chair of adult education, help organize the event. So, so then I shouldn't ask you why you're here. Why is it important that we have this event, Kenny? Um, well, I'm here more to listen to the answers than, than to ask questions. And I think it's good to have an open dialogue amongst the religions and uh, to get other thoughts and ideas and to be open-minded and to hear what others have to say. Now, are there any particular questions that you hope will be answered for you tonight? Um, I don't know. I, I think it'll be interesting to hear uh, the different observations of how um, each clergy um, considers their God and how they feel their parishioners consider their God as well and, and what the understanding will be. Very good. Thank you very much, Kenny. Now, someone else who came tonight is Anissa. Anissa, what faith do you belong to? Islam. So you're a Muslim, and why, what brought you here tonight? Um, genuine interest uh, to see how everybody interacts with each other. And I've actually never been to a synagogue. It's the first time, so it's quite interesting for me. Um, so it, it's kind of to see the community that we live in come together. Uh, that's, that's my genuine interest, to see how everybody is tonight. Those are all very, very good reasons. Now, are there any particular questions that you hope will be answered tonight? Um, no particular questions per se. It's more interest of how, um, you know, the fates are so similar as we have learned in our religion that the fates are so similar. So see how s this similarity generates, how the answers are generated tonight um, and how the similarity can help build our community, hopefully, for future being a younger generation of the Western society. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's very true. There's a lot of young people here tonight. Someone else is here, and actually he came a long way from, from Ottawa, correct? Dustin, right. um, you are a Roman Catholic? That's right. I'm a Roman Catholic missionary at the University of Ottawa. And uh, So what brought you to the event tonight? What's your curiosity? Well, I've never been to an interfaith dialogue before. 
Um, I'm a young man, and so uh, I see this as an awesome opportunity to kind of learn about how we could uh, go about uh, doing interfaith dialogue on a university campus, because it is a very diverse campus at the University of Ottawa, and I've come across a a lot of uh, Muslims and uh, a few Jewish people here and there, too. That's very true. In fact, Canada is probably the most multicultural country in the world. Are there any questions that you hope will be answered tonight for you? Uh, Probably... I guess I've never been in a, in a synagogue either, just like the young lady over here. But uh, probably the biggest question would be, how can I as a Catholic missionary really first and best go about interfaith dialogue? Now, it's very important at uh, this point. Thank you, Dustin, because at least for us who are uh, Catholic, it is part of our faith. Interfaith dialogue is part of our faith. We're called to get to know people of other faiths. So that's one of the main reasons why we're here tonight. Uh, people are still arriving. The event will happen momentarily. We're going to be, begin with a short introduction. Each of the three panelists will uh, speak a little bit about their faith um, and about their belief, what that one passage from Exodus means to them. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, this is my God. And then we're going to take questions. So without further ado, we're just going to uh, wait a little bit and I'll pass it on to the uh, moderator of the event inside the chapel here at Beth Shalom, Stephen Skurka. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Beth Shalom Synagogue for this, what I believe is an extraordinary program. I'm very excited uh, to be the moderator of this panel tonight. My name is uh, Stephen Skirka. We have a distinguished panel um, to speak to you tonight on the issue of faith and God. We have, starting with the panelist closest to me, Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, then beside him, Imam Hamid Slimi, and then finally beside him, Father Thomas Razika. I would like to welcome you to our synagogue. Father Razika and Imam Salimi. I'd like to indicate that tonight's program is being webcast. Uh, this is a sign of the times. This is being broadcast not just across this country, but indeed around the world on a Catholic television network known as saltandlighttv.org. So be aware that whatever is said tonight, when you write your questions, goes down for posterity, not just for tonight. Rabbi Aaron indicated that the purpose of this program is to bring us together to talk about what we believe so that we can understand one another through knowledge and importantly, not through assumption. And we hope to achieve that tonight. It's an opportunity with dignity and respect to speak and discuss each other's religions with leaders of each respective faith. A couple of preliminary comments. Uh, Tonight's program is sponsored by Sheila Kirschenblatt in memory and honor of her dear father, Rabbi Jacob Mendel Kirschenblatt, who was a well-known and well-loved assistant rabbi emeritus at this synagogue. He taught hundreds of students in the Mildred Arnoff Hebrew School and served for many years as the synagogue's assistant rabbi and Torah reader. The Rabbi Jacob Mendel Kirschenblatt Endowment Fund was created by his daughter Sheila as memorial to his unwavering commitment to continuing education, and we thank Sheila for sponsoring tonight's event. 
I also wanted to give recognition to the Neighborhood Interfaith Group, which is composed of major synagogues and churches in the city. Uh, that group worked very hard to make this program a success, and I'm sure it will be. And judging by the attendance here tonight, I'm doing that on behalf of the webcast because you can't see that this room is filled, but uh, certainly <coughs> we've, we've started in a very good way. I'm going to now briefly introduce each of our speakers. And uh, I know that for many of you, Rabbi Aaron Flansreff needs no introduction, but in the interests of parity and proportionality, I'll have to give him equal credit tonight. Rabbi Aaron Flansreff was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1966, attended Bar Ilan University in Ramat Gan, Israel, where he was also admitted into the university's prestigious Advanced Talmudic Institute. In 1990, he received a dual ordination from Yeshivat Sha'ar Ephraim and the Israeli Chief Rabbinate. He has been the senior rabbi of Beshalom Synagogue since 1998. He instituted a kosher food bank, a summer work program for Jewish teenagers, and assisted in implementing the Out of Coal program for the homeless. He is past president of the Toronto Board of Rabbis, a former chair of the Christian Jewish Dialogue of Toronto, where during his tenure, the interfaith program, Walking God's Paths, was introduced to Toronto for the first time. He is a board member of the Canadian Rabbinic Caucus, a board member of Israeli Bonds Rabbinic Cabinet, and the author of a small book on combating Jewish fundamentalism called The Small Still Voice. And for those of us who have the great pleasure to hear Rabbi Aaron speak to us weekly through his sermons. He is able to brilliantly uh, speak contemporary issues uh, with insight and great humor. And we're very honored to have him as our rabbi in the synagogue. Let me then turn to Imam Slimi. Dr. Hamid Slimi is the founder and president of Faith of Life Network. He has been serving as an imam, chaplain, educator, and consultant in Canada for over 14 years in different religious and educational institutions. Dr. Slimi is also the resident scholar, imam, and founder of Sayeda Khadija Center. He's the current chairman of the Canadian Council of Imams. He is a lecturer at the Islamic Institute of Toronto a board member of different interfaith and community bodies and groups, a TV host and producer of faith, of live TV shows and documentaries, and Dr. Amit Slimi holds two master degrees in Islamic studies and comparative world religions, respectively, from Morocco and the U.S., and a Ph.D. in Islamic law from the U.K., Dr. Hamid Slimi. Father Thomas Rosica is a priest of the Congregation of St. Basil, Basilian Fathers. He was born in Rochester, New York, and was ordained a priest in the Congregation of St. Basil, Basilian Fathers, some 25 years ago, again in the city of Rochester. He holds advanced degrees in theology and sacred scripture from Regis College in the Toronto School of Theology, the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome, and the École Biblique et archéologique français de Jerusalem. Father Rosica has lectured in sacred scripture at Canadian universities in Toronto, 
Windsor, and London since 1990. From 1994 to the year 2000, he served as the executive director of the Newman Center Catholic Chaplaincy at the University of Toronto. He's been involved in Jewish, Christian, and interfaith dialogue at the national and international level since 1994. In June 1999, he was appointed by the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops as the Chief Executive Officer and National Director of the World Youth Day and the Papal Visit of Pope John Paul II that took place in Toronto during July 2002. As of July 1, 2003, he's been the Chief Executive Officer of the Salt and Light Television, as I noted, Canada's first Catholic television network. In October 2008, he was appointed by Pope Benedict XVI as the English-speaking media attaché of the Vatican Synod of Bishops on the Word of God and the life and the mission of the Church. In February 2009, Pope Benedict XVI appointed him as consultant to the Pontifical Council for Social Communications at the Vatican, Father Thomas Rosica. Let me tell you briefly about the format for tonight's event. We're going to begin by calling on each of the panelists in the order that they're seated closest to me uh, to introduce their topic related to the, our subject matter of tonight's evening, What is God? Um, and we're going to provide each of them about 10 minutes uh, to provide that introduction. I may gently... Uh, diplomatically give them a brief nudge if they exceed that time, so I apologize to you in advance, gentlemen, but I, I promise to do it uh, in, in as inintrusive fashion as possible. So we'll start now. Rabbi Aaron, the podium is yours. You have your 10 minutes, sir. Thank you, sir. Does it start now? It starts or now. Or you clear off? <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, first begin my comments by um, acknowledging uh, the presence of many different faith communities here. And I want to welcome all of you to Beth Shalom Synagogue. The name Beth Shalom means literally house of peace. But uh, it is interesting to know that the word Shalom is also one of the names in Hebrew for God. And so we always acknowledge first and foremost that where there is peace between people, God is between people. So I want to welcome you all here and my friends, Imam Slimi and Father Rosika. It's a true honor to have you here in our house of worship. The great philosopher, French philosopher and writer, André Gide, explained the reason why we say the same things over and over again. He said that repeating truths are necessary only because we forget them. Before us on this evening stands the representatives of the great Abrahamic faiths. And Gide's quotes explains in some ways why religion is so necessary. It is because we do forget truths and that religion is the means to protect those eternal truths, the most essential of which is the existence of God. It was Abraham who postulated first in the existence of a God that could not be seen nor felt, but that existed nonetheless. It was Abraham who reached beyond the confines of the measurable to see that meaning could exist beyond what we could define and fathom. And when faced with the existence of the infinite and of the unfathomable, I suspect that there are a few responses. One is to simply abandon it and ignore it. To say that because I can't see it, that it doesn't exist. Or to look at the impossibility of God and admit that the comprehension of the divine is beyond us entirely. 
which is like infinity. A good working of infinity is this. Imagine traveling at the speed of light for 25,000 years and being in exactly the same place from where you started. It is to cross no distance, to make no dent in the space that separates us from where we are, from where we want to be. And yet faced with all of that impossibility, the impossibility of understanding, the impossibility of relativity, the impossibility of dialogue, my faith, Judaism, refused to walk away from the impossible. It refused to resign itself from a life with God simply because we couldn't understand God. In actuality, what Judaism did was demand from us to embrace the impossibility of God while giving all that is possible to God. Life with faith and meaning of justice and law. From its earliest beginnings, Judaism recognized the paradox that it plays in. The more we stand before the infinite, and the more we are dwarfed by its greatness, the more meaningful our lives feel. But what is Ze'eli? What is my God? What kind of God do I believe in? A few months ago, a professional football player went to Twitter to blame God for dropping the game-winning pass. Stephen Johnson wrote this, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. This is a quote. I don't speak like this. <laughs> you expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this. The God that I believe in does not help people catch balls or score goals, hit home runs, or cure diseases. The God that I believe in does not make earthquakes or typhoons, nor in the movement of the pen, the surgical knife, or the cash register. But I do believe that there are explanations. You dropped the ball because the angle was off. Someone you love took ill because of a combination of environment, genes, and lifestyle. You got the job because in addition to being qualified, the person who made the decision thought you reminded them a little bit of a childhood friend or had a favorite niece who went to the same undergraduate college or decided they had a good, they had a good enough of the interview process and they didn't want to see anyone else beyond the next qualified person they met. While my God does not cure diseases or make disasters, I know that my God inspires people to find cures and to save people from disasters. I know that my God makes me and countless others refuse to accept the world for what it is. And it is this God which fills our hopes and our dreams and makes us yearn to carry on for something better. Especially when that something better is something that we can't see in the moment or even imagine exactly what it might be. As a Jew, I know this to be deeply true. It has sustained us as a people throughout centuries of privation. And as a human being, I know this is true. Through my suffering and the suffering I have seen in others, the belief that life has meaning, even in the most difficult of circumstances, is that message. A member of my congregation, now over 80 years old, was captured as a youth by the Nazis. He had trained himself to be a medic so that he would be useful in the camps. As a result, he survived the war. He was in 18 different camps, and the evil he witnessed was unimaginable. I asked him once how he survived, and he said, when the Nazis came for me, I told my mother, 
that if she had heard that I was shot or hung, that it was true. But if they said that I had starved, she shouldn't believe it. There was no way that I would fail to survive. So long as there remained any chance at all to live, I would. Each day he managed to figure out what he needed to do to keep going. After the war, he created a very successful real estate company, which he now still runs. He attends services regularly and credits God with enabling him to endure. But the thing for us to consider is that he's not under the illusion that faith alone can guarantee survival. Rather, he tells me that there is no way that he could have survived without it. His fate was written not in his genes, but in his will. Judaism represents our willingness to not ignore the divine. It is the belief in human life and human goodness. It is the belief that God's work, which is our world, will not be repaired or improved by divine action or messianic moments, but through the incessant, unrelenting human march towards the divine, which is the root of our goodness, which for the Jews is framed, but not solely defined, by the Torah. Jewish tradition says that the 632,000 letters of the Torah put together spell the name of God, which is a metaphoric way of telling us that living a life filled with wisdom and law is akin to finding God. So there's a story told about a European rabbi named Israel Kagan, who lived in Poland about 100 years ago. A student of his had been falsely accused of a crime and the man's lawyer wanted to call the rabbi as a character reference for his client. The judge didn't seem particularly impressed with the rabbi, so the lawyer tells him that one day the rabbi, Rabbi Kagan, had come home from teaching, only to find a robber stealing his meager possessions. The robber was startled and burst out of the house, clinging on to whatever he had in his hands. And the rabbi, the lawyer said, ran after him down the street, yelling, I forgive you, I forgive you. So the judge looks at the lawyer and says, do you really expect me to believe that story? And the lawyer said, maybe not, Your Honor, but consider this. They don't tell stories like that about you or me. The Jews do not see themselves as the chosen of the world. We see ourselves as those who have chosen to follow God's word much the same as the wonderful men I share this podium with tonight. Judaism continues to believe that our best chance of greatness lies through and with the power of faith and human action. And again, the words of Andre Jade echoes in our hearts. He wrote late in his life, man cannot discover new oceans unless he has the courage to lose sight of the shore. Thank you very much. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel, Sirius 159 and XM 117. I'm Pedro Guevara Mann, and we're listening to a special Salt and Light Radio featuring part one of a panel discussion with Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Father Thomas Rosica, and Imam Hamid Slimi. Imam Slimi will now take the podium. Shalom, salam alaikum, peace be with you. Good evening. And thank you, Rabbi, for welcoming us in the midst of your congregation and having us for a common purpose share with you some thoughts on the verse we read in Exodus 
15. This verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my defense. Oh, sorry, uh, 3. 15, 3. The Lord, he is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Muslims believe in the Torah, Pentecost, and believe in the gospel of Jesus, peace be upon him, and believe in the Quran and the scrolls as reported in the Quran of Moses and Abraham. A revelation is coming from, of course, the same source. That's what Muslims believe. And I thank you, Rabbi, for mentioning the connection we have to our father Abraham. Peace be upon him. In chapter 16, we read a verse specifically directed to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It says, and we have revealed to you that you must and you shall follow the path of your father Abraham. So Islam is a continuation of the same message of Abraham. I always say, if you want to know about Islam, you don't need to read the Quran. Read Genesis, read the Ten Commandments, and read Abraham fell on his face to the Lord. And read Daniel in Babylonia, facing Jerusalem, bowing down and worshiping the Lord. And all these great men, as the Quran says, we respect them, we love them, and every time we mention their names, we should say, peace upon them. And I love the name of this synagogue, Beit Shalom, in Arabic, Beit Salam, or Dar Salam. And this is, in my view, relating to these very verses here, peace cannot be uh, ink on a paper, but it has to be translated in action. And one information that many of you may not know, that the word Islam is not originally a noun, and it's, it's an adverb. It's an adverb. And an adverb means it requires an action. So Islam is about the action of peacemaking and also the state of being in peace. When any one of us prays to the Lord, to God Almighty, to Allah, to Elohim, to Jehovah, but He's the same God, the Creator, we are asking for peace. When we want to get married, we look for peace. If there is no peace in marriage, then it's only a legal marriage. But peace is the reason why we get married. Peace is the reason why we go to sleep. Peace is the reason why we live in this world. It should be our focus and our priority. Now, when we read God is my strength or the Lord is my strength and my song, I see parallel verses in the Holy Quran. And as I said to Rabbi, rather than rambling and reflecting, I'd like to share some verses that are parallel to this verse. Our organization is called Faith of Life Network. We just want to say to the world, especially in what's happening in the world, that our faith celebrates life. It's not against life. It's not a faith of death because, of course, you don't need to be Albert Einstein or a genius to know that Islam and 
unfortunately, the notoriety is not a, a positive one, but rather a negative. So, God Almighty says, summarizing the verse, many verses, says, Oh, you who believe in the word, answer the call of God and his messenger when he calls you to that which gives you life. So we celebrate life. Strength is about life. And song that Moses here with his congregation, the children of Israel are going to sing. They are actually celebrating life. So singing in this verse is about celebration and strength is about life. So let me share with you a few verses. The God we believe in, we were taught that he has more than 99 names. And each name tells us who he is. And each name manifests itself in his blessings. God is all hearing, most gracious, most merciful, most kind, most compassionate. All of these attributes are actually supposed to guide us to manifest the will of God by trying to adopt them. And that's why we're told in the Quran, when we pray to God, we should reflect on his beautiful names and attributes. And then if we're seeking his forgiveness, we have to be forgiven. If we're seeking his mercy, we have to be merciful. As Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, be merciful to those on earth, for God is merciful to those on earth. Be merciful to others, so you will have more mercy bestowed on you from God. What do Muslims believe about God? This God, God of love, we hear sometimes. But we also read in the Bible and the Quran, maybe God of war too. He's a warrior as we read in the Bible. So why is he telling us love and he's telling us war? Sometimes he's confusing us. And sometimes we don't know enough the context of the verses. Some incidents are very specific. They are very limited by the context. And you need a knowledgeable person. It's a chain of knowledgeable men handing over this knowledge from, tradition, from, from generation to generation. They understand when the verses are general and the verses are specific. That applies to the Quran, applies to the Bible. But there are verses that are clear. There are principles. Let me read just a few. I can't read the whole Quran. It will take a month. I might, I might have to stand up and interrupt you. Who? <laughs> I don't tell me my 10 minutes are no, over, no, no? no? Okay, okay. I just started by the way. So God says, say, he's talking to me, to any Muslim. We believe in God, Allah, and the revelation given to us and to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and that given to Moses and Jesus, and that given to all prophets from their Lord. We make no difference between one another and of, of them, and we bow to God Almighty. Say, we believe in Allah, and what has been revealed to us, and what was revealed to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes. And in the books given to Moses, 
Jesus and the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction between one and another among them. Just a little stop here. You can't be a Muslim by saying, I believe only the Quran. You have to believe in the Torah and the gospel. You have to believe in this, this chain, this connection, as Rabbi said, to Abraham that binds us all. If anyone desires, uh, and then he says, to buy them. Then he says, verily my Lord has guided me. This is like a, comes after the commandments in chapter 6, verses 151. And what follows? Verily, my Lord has guided me to a way that is straight, a religion of right, the path of Abraham, who was true in his faith. And he certainly joined no gods, or he joined gods with God. Say, truly, my prayer, this is a concept we have. Your life is dedicated to God. My prayer, my service and sacrifice, my life and my death are all for God Almighty the cherisher of the worlds. No partner has he. You see here repetition in Islam of strict monotheism. Very straightforward. He and I am commanded and I am the first of those who bow to his will. The submission to the Lord, the actual, the physical action of bowing down on one's face manifests the, the, the state of spirit. You are humble before God. This brings the uniformity and the oneness of humanity. No one is better than the others, as we read in other places. The God we know is a forgiving and understanding God. He says to us, O my servants who have transgressed. Every time we transgress, I am not a perfect. No one is perfect. So I do, part of my package is that I sin. Not intentionally, but I, from time to time, sin and make mistakes. But God comforts me and consoles me when He says, O oh, my servants who have transgressed against their souls, despair not of the mercy of your Lord. For Allah forgives all sins, for He is oft forgiven, most merciful. A very merciful, most gracious, and most merciful. Every Muslim who prays, Minimum every day repeats, God, you're the most gracious, most merciful. 44 times minimum. Most of the people do. So to reflect on the major names of God and attributes, mercy. A very merciful God. Let me read for you the first chapter of the Holy Quran, which summarizes, and we call it actually the mother of the book. You can't pray the five daily prayers without saying this. In the name of Allah, the beneficent, the merciful. Praise be to Allah, the cherisher and sustainer of the worlds. Most gracious, most merciful. Master of the day of judgment. Thee do we worship and thine aid we seek. Show us the straight way, the way of those on whom thou hast bestowed thy grace. Those whose portion is not wrath and who go not astray. And we read again. My mercy extends to all things. God is in a love relationship with His creation. He loves and He hates. Like us, we love and hate. But what does He love? He loves virtuously. And He hates injustice. In the very context, three times God Almighty spoke of hate. That I hate. He hates insolent 
arrogant pride and he hates injustice and he hates rejecting truth but most of the time God loves those who purify themselves God loves the sinners who come out and do acknowledge that they have sinned and seek the mercy of their Lord as a little child apologizes to his mother he is a beautiful God God is beautiful as the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him says and he loves beauty he describes himself as being the light of the heavens and the earth and that when we are just when we are just to those around us starting with the family we have understood what the light of God and we've been blessed by having our hearts enshrine the light of God Almighty what does he want us to tell you folks the people of the book the Christians and the Jews he wants us actually to tell you this as Muslims so there was a, doc uh, a document that was signed by close to 200 scholars worldwide and they uh, the, uh, the uh, Vatican received that document and it was appreciated and still of course based on that document which actually highlights the verse from chapter 3 and it's verse 64 that actually has started a good um, uh, it's been an impetus behind many dialogues happening around the world say all people of the book come to common terms as between us and you that we worship none but God, that we associate no partners with him, that we erect not from among ourselves lords and patrons other than God. If then they turn back, meaning Prophet Muhammad is telling, say this to the Jews and the Christians. If you don't agree to what we say, do bear witness that we are Muslims, that we like, like Abraham, to bow down to God's will. I do have a minute left. One minute. <laughs> and sometimes, unfortunately, and this is, you can watch my television shows and my sermons and always repeat, you can't be a good Muslim unless you are a good human being. I don't have to tell you what a good human being is. And I'm sure myself and my co-panelists here we are all agreeing that some people may use religion as a, unfortunately an agenda as a, you know an opium as some said earlier to uh, target or to aim at achieving some goals religion has its ups and downs but what is more important to understand is that religion only came to help us to find out about God. And there are many ways. And the Quran says, had been, had the will of God been to unite you, he would have done so. But it is a wisdom that yet probably to discover or uncover. But what is more important is, Islam emphasizes the call to nature and going back to the natural way. The natural way that is very difficult to talk about the existence of God and how God exists and how do we feel him. We all have our own experiences and none of us has the right to judge others how we find God in our experiences. We're all in this spiritual quest. So that's why we ask God 
more than, as I said, 17 times a day, saying, guide us to the straight path, because we're humans and we do err, and God covers us with mercy. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was sitting once, and uh, a woman was running by him. She was running and she caught his attention and the attention of his companions. And when he looked at her rushing, he followed her. She jumped to save her baby or her toddler who was going to a pit of fire. And then he commented and said, did you see this woman? They said, yes. He said, do you doubt that this woman would give her life to save her child? They said, no. He said, God is more merciful to you than this woman with her baby. This is the God I believe in. This is the God I love. And this is the God I worship. Thank you. God bless you. You're listening to Salt and Light Radio on the Catholic Channel, Sirius 159 and XM 117. Salt and Light Radio is also heard at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. We're listening to part one of a panel discussion from the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto. We just heard from Imam Hamid Slimi, and now Father Thomas Rosica takes the podium. Thank you very much, Rabbi Aaron. Imam, I'm very much at home in this synagogue. It's the first synagogue I preached in years ago. So whenever I come back, I see many familiar faces and friends. During my graduate studies in the Holy Land, I remember a very significant theological conversation in a Jerusalem cafe with a Palestinian Muslim friend and a Jewish friend studying with me at the Hebrew University. We were speaking about Christianity and Catholicism, and at one point, my two friends said to me, why have you folks, you Christians, complicated things so much, especially with the teaching about your God, trying to call your God Trinity? God is really quite simple, they said, and you Christians have made the whole thing into one big mystery. And so this evening, I want to tell you about my God and about this mystery, which really isn't as mysterious as it seems. It's true that the mystery of God is complex and often chases away the spirit of simplicity, which enables us to respond to God's radical presence in our lives and in the life of the world. Yet it is only in probing the depths of this great and what we call sanctifying mystery of God that we come to a greater understanding of the truth and discover our own orientation towards the mystery that's implanted, marked deep within us. The Christian God is a living being who exists in intimate relationship with us. One of the important impressions, dimensions of our Trinitarian God is the community of love and persons modeled for us in the mystery, what we call the Holy Trinity. For Christians, the Trinity is the primary symbol of a community that is held together by containing diversity within itself. The language of Father and Son is relational language and reminds us that for God as for us, created in God's image, relationship and community are primary fundamental at the core of our being. Our God is rich in relationships, communication, and love for all people. This God models to us what the dynamic Trinitarian life is all about, communication, relationship, and affection. The quality of our Christian lives is based on imitation of the interior life of the Trinity. Hopefully, what we're living on the outside is a reflection 
of the deep interior unity, communication, and relationship of God. God the Father challenges us for our own strengthening. When we need to be awakened, God acts as a divine alarm clock. When we run away, God is the hound of heaven, pursuing us as Jesus pursued the lost sheep. God as Holy Spirit reverently uses not destructive force or coercion, but truth force. He persuades us and convinces us. God is this reverent persuading, always liberating us from the coercive idols, speaking within the still, small voice when we accept the invitation to grow. And God also wrestles with us when we need to accept a challenge to conversion. God is this communication between the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, Ruach Kudus, the Holy Spirit. We must constantly strive for this communication, unity and peace. The peace of God and of Jesus and their life-giving spirit, a peace that theological controversy never gives. Though theology is absolutely necessary, and I would be the last one to criticize it, being a professor of it. However, theology might not lead us to love God more. What is the great consolation to understanding this mystery? It is loving God and loving our neighbor, the great contribution of Jesus Christ to humanity, building on the great Jewish tradition, the love of God and the love of neighbor that Jesus links together. And love can never outgrow its fascination with the puzzling aspect of the one loved. This is my approach and our approach to the mystery we call the Trinity. Now, as a Christian, I know, I know God. I learned to love God by gazing on the face of Jesus of Nazareth. He is God's word made flesh, one who pitched his tent among us. And we have seen, felt, heard, touched, and experienced this glorious tenting, this divine camping among us. In Jesus of Nazareth, who we locate in time and place and history, the word did not become an email, an SMS, a text message, or some kind of divine oracle uttered from on high in some distant galaxy years ago. Through Mary of Nazareth in Israel, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. The word became close to real people in real time. Through the wonder and mystery of what we call the incarnation of the word becoming flesh, the word did not become a philosophical principle, a theory, a concept to be discussed, debated, exegeted, or pondered, but the word became a person to be followed, imitated, enjoyed, and loved. And our redemption, our salvation, is found in this child of Bethlehem, who would later become the man of Jerusalem, the man of the cross, and the risen Lord and Savior of humanity. Anyone who has really understood that God became human can never speak and act in an inhuman way. This Jesus, the Word made flesh, walked our land. He used a unique method of storytelling to engage us and involve us, to empower us, and to offer models of living. This method of teaching was known as the parables. In Jesus, God is like the merchant who sells everything in order to possess the single pearl, a people dearly loved and cherished. In Jesus, God is the shepherd who rejoices when we return from our wanderings. As a sign of hope for a struggling community, Jesus' parables assure believers that the future reign of the kingdom of God is inevitable. 
parables reinforce the teachings of Jesus on forgiveness. These marvelous stories tell us about a God who hears the cries of the poor and defends widows, orphans, and immigrants and refugees. The God of the Bible suffers with people. God comes among us as a vulnerable baby, born among the homeless, living an immigrant and refugee life, associating with outcasts and sinners. And Jesus compares the kingdom to receiving little children. This God is then executed and buried in a borrowed tomb. What an incredible story. True disciples of Jesus are those who can think symbolically. They're not hostile and literal fundamentalists, but they can think symbolically and place themselves in the story. And to say what Jesus did is something that I could imitate and repeat in my life. One parable that sums up beautifully the work of my God, the Christian God, and that emphasizes so much what Jesus represented is a parable that I think the three of us as religious leaders would embrace as saying, that describes what we're doing. In Christianity, we call this parable the Good Samaritan. It's told to us in Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. The story of the Good Samaritan is powerful, for it speaks of the power of love that transcends all creeds and cultures and creates a neighbor out of a complete stranger. It's a parable that's personal, for it describes with profound simplicity the blossoming of a human relationship that has a personal touch, even physically, transcending social and cultural taboos, as one person binds the wounds of another. It's a parable that's tremendously pastoral, for it's filled with the mystery of care and concern that's at the heart of the best of human behavior, as the Good Samaritan reaches out and ministers to his newfound neighbor. It's a parable that's primarily practical, for it urges us to cross all barriers of cultures and communities and to go and do likewise. Samaritans, as we know, were hated by the lawyer's racial group. Priests were expected to be law-abiding role models, and Levites would have been expected to have a special dedication to the law. But they all failed. It's the Samaritan who proves himself to be the neighbor in this story. In the end, the lawyer is even unable to say that it was the Samaritan who showed compassion. He resorts to the description, the one who treated him with compassion. To show compassion is at the heart of the work of my God and the life of my God. This is how Jesus, the good Samaritan par excellence, showed compassion. In Jesus, he walked among us. He restored broken humanity to wholeness and peace. He suffered with and suffered in the persons to whom he ministered. He felt their hunger. He sensed their sorrow. He understood their pain. He sympathized and befriended sinners. He touched the ostracized. Compassion does not lead us indifferent or insensitive to another's pain, but it calls for solidarity with the suffering. Compassion is the one word that perhaps best expresses the attitude and action of the Good Samaritan. Compassion is the word at the heart of Christianity. The Good Samaritan could have, like the priest and the Levite, passed on the other side. He could have closed his heart and refused to respond to the genuine need. But he stopped. That very moment when he stopped, he stooped to serve the stranger who had fallen into the hands of bandits, and a neighbor was born. Compassion that is prompted by love is creative. It creates neighbors. We are not allowed as Christians to pass by on the other side. We must stop and stoop. Everyone who stops beside the suffering of another person, whatever form of it is, becomes a good Samaritan and imitates Jesus. He 
is a reflection of God. Compassion, commitment, and communion are at the heart of the Trinitarian life of our God. God's communication platform is the human person, and we see in Jesus a complete, completely new kind of real friendship with God. Anyone who tries to rewrite history or rewrite the gospel stories of Jesus' suffering and death is unfaithful to history and dishonest in applying lessons of the past to contemporary situations. Let me leave you with this thought. There's a haunting question about the meaning of Good Friday. And Good Friday is a very significant day to speak about, especially in a synagogue. Where was God in the midst of the disaster on Calvary? A question that was cried out from the wood of the cross. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Has God forgotten his son Jesus? Well, Elie Wiesel writes about the same question when he was in the death camp at Auschwitz. He describes the scene for us in his book called Night. And it's in this particular scene by a Jewish author speaking about a horrendous moment in world history that it reveals something about my kind of God, my God. I quote, The three victims mounted onto the chairs. The three necks were placed in the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults, but the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone asked behind me. At a sign from the head of the camp, the chairs tipped over, total silence through the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was raucous. We were weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march past the dead man began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen, blue-tinged. But the third rope was still moving, being so light, the child was still alive. For more than an hour, he stayed there struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under their eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. He was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was still red, his eyes not yet glazed. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God? Here he is. He's hanging on the gallows. Good Friday shows me where my God is as a Christian, hanging on the wood of the cross in Jerusalem and on crosses throughout the world where people are unjustly accused, are put to death out of anger, violence, hatred, and jealousy. Jesus hangs on the cross. What seems to be the naked body of a broken young man, a symbol of divine failure, vulnerability, and loss. And yet, from that cross... He stops the vicious cycles of violence and evil that have confronted us as human beings for centuries. This is my God, a God who suffers and never responds to violence done to him with more of his own. A God who cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A God who entrusts his life into the hands of his Father. My God teaches us, teaches me, the mystery of forgiveness is lived in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I learn from what happened to Jesus and ask myself not only about the identity of those who tried, condemned, and killed him long ago, but about what kills Jesus in the vicious cycles of violence, brutality, and hatred that continue to crucify him today in his brothers and sisters of the human family. Dialogue between Christians, Muslims, and Jews must never be reduced to an optional extra in today's world. It is a necessity on which in large part our future depends. The imperative of interfaith dialogue is nothing less than the imperative of preventing war, saving lives, 
and making and preserving peace and turning humanity to God. It is above all a sacred mission to save the human race. This does not mean that I as a Catholic must accept the view that the truths in all religion are equally true, because they are not. It does mean that religious pluralism is part of the context in which the church exists and in which I must articulate the Christian tradition in a multicultural society, especially like ours. This evening's interfaith event is a blessed opportunity to do just that. It's only when we are able to speak together, to stop, to stoop, and to form communion, and openly speak about the God of Jews, Christians, and Muslims, that we will be a better service to God and to the world. Thank you. That concludes part one of this special edition of Salt and Light Radio from the Beth Shalom Synagogue in Toronto. We heard from Rabbi Aaron Flansreich, Imam Hamid Slimi, and Father Thomas Rosica. If you'd like to comment on what you heard today on our program, please write to us, radio at saltandlighttv.org. Remember to tune in next week for part two of this special discussion. I'm Pedro Guevara Man. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Salt and Light Radio.